It's go time. You're listening live to Third Down Gamble. First down. As Trevor Harris played his final game in Montreal. Omicron! Welcome everybody to Third Down Gamble. Don Charbon along with Pat Mooney and Heath Graham. And before we get anywhere, we just hope and pray that Omicron does not make its way into the bad books and cause havoc with the rest of the CFL playoffs. We sure do. We don't want anything to go. The CFL, as we spoke to the other week, has done very well to this point to have a limited number of cases that really haven't impacted other than in Edmonton. And uh, we don't want something to throw this all off. We're so close to the finish line. Interestingly, had Calgary won the playoff game, there was a question as to who from Calgary would actually be going to the West Final because driving from Calgary to Winnipeg is a bit of a chore. Those who are not vaccinated cannot board other transportation. That would have been interesting had that played out. But let's get to the where we started. Omicron aside, Trevor Harris, has he played his way off another team? Yes. I, I think with Vernon Adams being the de facto number one quarterback in Montreal, Harris came in in relief and did what they needed him to do other than win the playoff games. But he he ran that offense. He got some success for Montreal. And at this point, with his contract, I believe he is due about a $300,000 bump in 2022 if he's not released. So for money purposes, I think this is the end for Trevor Harris in Montreal. And we'll see where he goes to next. Vernon Adams is Montreal's quarterback. He's their future. And... Trevor Harris was brought in to, to you know, do the, do the duty he did. And, you know, even if he'd gone all the way, I'm not sure that he would have been their guy either because the age of Trevor Harris and, and the amount of money that he would be asking for if he were successful is going to put that team in a different place. So I, I do agree 100% with what you're saying, Heath. I think Trevor Harris will be a free agent shortly and he'll have an opportunity to go to whichever team wants him. Perhaps back to Ottawa. Will there be a team, seriously, that will want him? I do not see any on the landscape. I heard, and this is kind of odd, but I heard that maybe Edmonton might be interested with a new coaching staff and general manager. I I find that almost unbelievable. Maybe being a backup, but he can't make the salary that he made. No chance. No, I agree 100%, but I think Trevor Harris would bring a lot to a team as a backup quarterback if he's willing to do that. The question is, when you've been a starter and you've been the man for that long, are you willing to step back and, and do that as abruptly as this would be, going from a starter to a backup? He didn't show much with the Alouettes. Some will argue, yes, he threw for 70% completion, but when you're not winning football games and he never won it when it mattered, and that was either the final game of the regular season or the playoff game in Hamilton. You can't keep two salaries that big on the team, as you guys have alluded to. Therefore, without a doubt, he is gone. It's got to be tough for the ego, but like I said, Ottawa could potentially be a possibility. They're not quite sure who their starting quarterback is going to be at this point. There's been a couple of guys in and out of that lineup giving it a go. So a veteran presence like Trevor Harris may be a good fit with Caleb Evans to kind of mentor but 
beyond that, you've mentioned Edmonton. That would be very interesting if he ends up back in Edmonton so quickly after things fell apart for him. And I don't know where else would have an opening that he would fit into. There were two playoff games in the Canadian Football League on the weekend. Each had their own storyline. The first was the Montreal Alouettes in Hamilton to face the Tiger Cats. Of course, the Tiger Cats, with all the pressure in the world of having the Grey Cup in Hamilton, the expectation that they're going to be in that Grey Cup in Hamilton. The Alouettes come into town, snow abounds. The Alouettes do well in their opening drive, get a field goal, and then do nothing. Hamilton unloads in the second quarter a huge fumble by Trevor Harris, another fumble by Trevor Harris, an interception by Trevor Harris, lead to a 20-point run in the second quarter for the Tiger Cats, and they cruised to a 23-12 win over the Alouettes. Eugene Lewis got the Alouettes going in the third quarter with a great drive, a couple of really good catches, and an amazing touchdown catch. But after that, the Alouettes just had nothing. It seemed to be the Hamilton defensive line completely controlled what was going to happen. And Harris, for want of a better word, looked lost at times, trying to figure out what to do with the football. Full marks to that Hamilton defensive line, as you said, Don. Not only did they give Trevor Harris fits, causing a couple of fumbles, they also held William Stanback in check. He had nothing going on the ground all game. I believe at halftime he had nine carries for 19 yards and finished the game with 12 carries for 29. So for a MOP candidate of William Stanback's caliber to be shut down like that, that was... Hamilton's defense taking it to them the other thing is not only did they stop the run which was absolutely incredible as well as the pressure of the defense but I think we have to give credit to the defensive backs and and the plan as a whole they did not allow any big plays in this game Uh, you know they forced Trevor Harris who did pass for 364 yards but they forced him to generally shorter passes throughout the course of the game and kept everything in front and controlled it and when they needed to make the stop they stepped up Harris Goes 28 of 44 for 364 yards, a touchdown and an interception, but it was the fumbles that really hurt the team. Jeremiah Mazzoli quarterbacking for the Tiger Cats went all the way 18 of 28 for 184 yards and a touchdown. Again, capitalizing was the operative word for the Tiger Cats as they took advantage of turnovers, especially in that second quarter. I think one thing that stood out to me was the inability of Trevor Harris to scramble at all. It seems when the pocket starts collapsing around him, he basically braces for impact. And it it didn't work out well because there was a couple of fumbles as well when that pressure came. But he just doesn't have that ability to escape the pocket throw on the run that is such a key factor that can turn a game around. Hamilton's defensive line generated six quarterback sacks, eight pass knockdowns that is utter dominance at the beginning of the year we were speculating the Hamilton defense might be one of the premier defenses and throughout the course of the year we didn't see it but certainly in this game that was a statement game and uh, it's going to be interesting as they head into Toronto next week to see if this defense can be as dominant again when they're not in their home park with the support of their home fans it'll be interesting on another level though because it's only about an hour or less from Hamilton to Toronto to get to that East final. It wouldn't surprise me if half the stadium is wearing black and gold. 
for it to be that close for Hamilton, I think you're right, Don. There are going to be a lot of Tiger Cat fans in attendance to cheer their team on. It's it's going to be a real mixed crowd in this one. So I don't know if it's that much of a home field advantage for the Argonauts. For the Tiger Cats, the win, of course, obviously gets them to that East final. Just yard comparatives. Montreal had 410, Hamilton 237 of offense. But when you're turning the ball over in your own end and the other team has a short field, it doesn't take them many plays to even get into field goal range or if they manage to push one in for a touchdown. So for all the chatter that Patrick Levels had provided prior to the game guaranteeing the win, the Ticats kept very quiet about it. But as soon as Brandon Banks scored that first touchdown, who did he turn to to talk to? Because it was Levels that he beat for the score. I don't think teams need added motivation in the playoffs. Um, in this case, Patrick Levels uh, needs to learn to just let his actions speak louder than his words. In another thing that I would say was very well done with Hamilton this time was their special teams play. Uh, when you can hold a team to 7.4 yards punt return and you're actually giving them five yards if you're not uh, getting a no yards penalty, you are only allowing 2.4. I believe their average was 7.4 for punt returns, 2.4 yards on a punt return. That's impressive. And when you take a look at the kickoffs that they had as well, I think the average would be below 15 yards per kickoff. So that's great coverage by those teams. And their kicking game seems to have found its groove as well. Uh, Hamilton is one of those teams that went through a few kickers and Michael Domagala was three for three. Uh, he did have, he wasn't tested for length. I think his longest field goal was 38 yards, but it was a snowy, windy day so an impressive performance in the kicking game there as well so special teams all around for the tiger cats really helped that victory two pieces of trivia this was the eighth win by the tie cats in the playoffs since 2010 montreal has yet to win a playoff game since 2014 the second game i think the game that will be talked about for a long 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 time the calgary stampeders and the saskatchewan rough riders meet in regina to decide once and for all who gets to face Winnipeg in the West Final. And it took overtime, Saskatchewan prevailing 33-30, to and something that I don't think I'd ever see in was that Rene Paredes had a poor day at the office. It's quite possibly the worst game in Rene Paredes' career, and what a time for it to happen. He looked so despondent after the game. He's going to carry this one with him for a long time. Hopefully he'll be able to bounce back and continue to be the successful kicker that he is. But I think a performance like that can really eat at a guy. Five of eight on field goal attempts. The three misses, 48, 35, and 44. And of course, the key one was the one that went wide left ever so slightly in overtime. Brett Lowther goes four of five on the other side, kicking field goals for Saskatchewan. His only miss hit the upright. It seemed Paraday's... Even on some of the field goals he did make was often off the one side. He just did not seem to be in a groove at all. There was one that, uh, from my vantage point, looked like it was awfully close to going almost directly over one of the, the field goal posts that was counted as good. So just a real struggle. And everyone's going to have those tough days. But when you're a kicker and it counts at the end of the game, oh boy, the pressure. And, and you can't help but feel sorry for him. It was a real tale of two halves in this game as well. It seemed like in the first half, neither offense wanted to be the team that plays Winnipeg next week with three interceptions by Cody Fajardo and two by Bo Levi Mitchell. And then in the second half, the offenses kind of came around and made for a really exciting finish. 
Bo Levi Mitchell goes 26 to 36 for 285 yards, but as Heath mentioned, two interceptions. Cody Fajardo goes 22 to 33 for 189 yards, a touchdown. That to Keon Schaefer Baker, four interceptions in this game. Schaefer Baker scoring that touchdown had another one in overtime that went through his hands. Several key moments in this football game. First was Fajardo's first interception deep in his own zone that set up Calgary's first touchdown. Second was right at the half, and we're going to have to wait for confirmation on this, but there was an altercation between Dekeel Williams and Sean Lemon. The Stampeders allege that Williams spit on Lemon, and Lemon responded by throwing a right hook. Lemon gets tossed 25 yards. The Rough Riders wisely take the kickoff and go for the short kick to start the second half and execute it to perfection, this time without Williams catching the ball, but a defensive end catching the ball. That was a fantastic play call by Craig Dickinson to start the second half. They had the field advantage, the short field, and it was a perfect time to execute that short kick, and it worked out really well. Looking at replays of this confrontation between Duke Williams and Sean Lemon, unless there's some more camera angles out there that show a prior conflict, there doesn't seem to be anything in there to indicate that that Dekeel Williams did anything to really instigate that confrontation with Sean Lemon. I, I would disagree having sat in the stadium and watching Dekeel Williams come back after Lemon pushed into the backfield the play previously. Dekeel Williams came back in and connected with the back of Sean Lemons where they got into a little bit of, an, uh, you know, you could certainly see some verbal sparring. And I'm pretty sure that he was doing something to potentially instigate that. When Lemon continued, obviously, if he felt he was spat on, I couldn't see that from the stands. But you can understand where he might have some frustration. The key is, as a veteran in the CFL, Sean Lemon has to know better. In the playoffs, you suck that one up, and you don't take a penalty like he did. Jonathan Moxie had three interceptions for the Stampeders in the first half. And on the other side, Ed Ganey had two for the Rough Riders. This game had everything, including a wild finish. When the Rough Riders went ahead 26-24, I kind of tapped my wife on the shoulder and said, why not go for two and force more than a field goal? And she kind of said, well, that's a bit risky. Four-point lead would have made Calgary march the field and score a touchdown, not kick a field goal to tie it and send it into overtime. Just the thought. It would be an interesting call, but again, if they don't convert on that two-point attempt, then the field goal coming back the other way would have been to win and not just to force overtime. So that in a playoff game, I don't know if you could make that call. And if you did, good on you. Because if I was a head coach, I don't know if I could ever put my team in a situation where leaving easy points off the board could cost you that game. Particularly in a hotbed like Saskatchewan, that coach maybe uh, handed his papers right after that decision if it didn't go right. He would be lauded as a hero if it did, but oh boy. Stampeders rack up 405 yards of offense, Saskatchewan 351. Kadeem Carey had a great day rushing the ball for Calgary. 22 carries, 117 yards. Cody Fajardo actually led the Rough Riders in rushing. 10 carries for 78, or 89 yards. William Powell, 18 carries for 71. The one thing that I think brings Saskatchewan a bit of an advantage is that rushing game of Cody Fajardo. The quarterback draw plays were very well called and very well timed and he had an 8.9 yard average on carries so 
he did things with his feet when he needed to. And some of them were scrambling and some of them were drawn up plays and it worked out really well for him. When you take a look at the juxtaposition of this game versus the Montreal game, Montreal's quarterback, if he had the ability, which Harris doesn't, of a Cody Fajardo, I think that game could potentially turn out totally different. Throwing for 365 yards is a great number of yards, but he was a target in the pocket, which led to the fumbles. Whereas when Cody Fajardo was a target in the pocket, they they eventually had to force someone to spy on him as a linebacker who sat right behind to try to spy him. And Fajardo was still able to elude that many times and make positive gains, if not get the first down. I don't know if I can blame Mitchell for the interceptions. One was a little bit high, but the receiver had both hands on it. The other one, it looked like the receiver broke the road off and Ganey happened to be the only one there. Where in the case of Fajardo, it seemed like him and Shaquille Evans are not on the same page. Two balls going to Evans were intercepted. And I'm wondering, and this is just speculation, if Evans is playing himself off the roster for the West Final. It was a pretty tough day for Shaq. One catch on four attempts for negative four yards is a pretty rough day. And for him to be that limited and the team to come out with the victory speaks volumes to the other receiving targets that the the Rough Riders have to throw at because there was a lot of talk about him being the number one or number two receiver and he certainly didn't look like it in this one. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders need to keep Shaquille Evans in the game. If he can get on a roll and do something, he has the ability to turn a game, but we certainly haven't really seen it this year. It's been a bit of a struggle for him and uh, we have to understand that he has been injured and maybe he's still not quite 100%, but I do believe his presence in the game makes the opposing defense have to at least look at covering him and stepping up. There were a few times in the game where I felt maybe he didn't go at the ball as hard as he could. Uh, it was pointed out in the broadcast, which I watched after, where he kind of drifted downfield. And a lot of receivers know to get back to the ball and catch it at the high point. So I think he's got a few things to learn. He's got to refocus, maybe get the mental focus of, if I'm not going to be the man, because clearly Duke Williams is the man in Saskatchewan at this point, how can I make sure I'm doing everything I can to be a strong contributor to my team? I would kind of compare him to Darwin Adams in Winnipeg in that they both have had in the past been a very popular and often targeted receiver. And those numbers have dipped a little bit this year. But you look at what Darwin Adams has done in Winnipeg and he is a, a downfield blocker and still kind of runs those routes hard. And like you said, Pat, when you play like that, somebody still has to cover you and you're still a focus whether you're the target or not. And if you let somebody like that by, all of a sudden he's going to beat you deep for a touchdown. And the difference between Darvin Adams and Shaq Evans seems to be a little bit of that compete. It seemed like with Evans, it started back when they were in Edmonton and he was getting frustrated with the routes and the balls coming to him and he threw his helmet off on the sideline and he's never looked right since. I do think Jason Moss also has to make sure you're putting people in places where they can succeed. And with Cody Fajardo uh, against this defense where we're throwing over the middle a lot, his, his passes were picked off in those cases. So you've got to take a look at what the team you're playing is going to give you on defense and make safe throws, but also have the ability at times to try to stretch in a, in a situation where you're not necessarily moving into a zone. It seemed like Cody Fajardo just wasn't quite sure what was coming at him. And the coach has to be aware of that and set it up. In the final drive, you saw Saskatchewan and Cody Fajardo read and make some quicker hits 
where they didn't have to wait for things to develop downfield. So they knew when the play was developing what the defense is giving them and got the ball to them quickly instead of waiting for things to, to move downfield a little bit further. One thing I really noticed in the overtime mini games was Calgary really attempted the quick strikes. They did. They, they went downfield on and went for the end zone right away. And when that didn't work, that's kind of what ended up costing them. I think they didn't get a lot of positive yardage, which left Rennie Paradis with a little bit of a longer field goal than he would have liked. Whereas the Rough Riders in overtime had some of the smart plays just to get momentum and positive yardage and made those uh, last-second field goals count. Famously, Brett Lowther had said he is the best clutch kicker in the CFL. He lived up to his words. The other one who I thought really played an inspired game was A.C. Leonard. He was everywhere in this game. He put pressure on the quarterback. He was dropping into coverage and dove to knock a ball down. He was, you know, a special teams demon. So uh, I think he had something to play for there. I think he may have, and, and we heard a number of riders before the game say that they felt maybe that they were slighted a little bit in the fact they finished second and only had two all-stars. They seemed to come out very inspired to show that they had the ability to play well. And, and certainly many cases, when we look at the kicker, when we look at A.C. Leonard, we look at the play of the defensive line, the pressures that they got when they needed to, there were some people who stepped up. For the Stampeders, it was the first time they would not have a home date in the playoffs since I think Haley's Comet came the first time. <laughs> and Bo Levi Mitchell, this was the first time that he ever started a playoff game against the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, which is an odd thing. But again, these two teams hadn't met since 2009 in the playoffs, in Regina at least. And if you said Bo Levi Mitchell was going to throw only two interceptions to Cody Fajardo's four, you would not think the Riders could come away with this win. It was a gutsy performance, and uh, I think it gives them some momentum moving into the Western Final. With the win, Saskatchewan finally wins a home playoff date at their new stadium, and that gets them into Winnipeg, or Death Valley as it's known this year, where the Blue Bombers haven't lost a football game at all. Second down. Let's talk about the two games that are coming up, the East Final and the West Final. Hamilton heading to Toronto is a one-point underdog with an over-under of 45.5 at BMO Field. This is going to be a pick'em game. It certainly is. And I can't disagree with that. When you look at these two teams and see how evenly they're matched, uh, the total yards per game were within three yards between the two games or two teams offensively. Um, this, this to me is truly a pick'em game. I think, as you alluded to earlier, if the Ticats can get a contingent of fans up there, this could be like a, a game in Calgary between Saskatchewan and Calgary where you're, you're not sure who the home team is. And this makes this game, I think, anyone's game. Passing yards for game, Toronto has six more than Hamilton. Rushing yards, 10-yard difference in favor of Hamilton. You go down the, the list of the stats and either Toronto has the advantage or Hamilton has the advantage. Slight. The season series, three of four went to Toronto and that's why the game is in Toronto. This is why you play so well in the regular season because Toronto gets that one game to get to the Grey Cup. Hamilton over the last month has been one of the best teams in the league and Toronto, not quite in the same boat as Winnipeg, but it got a little bit dicey there in the last couple of weeks where things could have gone one way or the other, depending on how games turned out. To me, Hamilton has stepped up when they've had to got themselves some momentum going in. 
it's a really tough game to to call and i think the one point spread the one point favorite is is pretty much bang on right now to me when i look at these two teams i think this game is going to be one on offense which is hard to say because they both got great defenses but really whichever quarterback of these two is able to step out and find their receivers and move the ball i think is going to allow them to pull this or eke out a win i really think it's going to be a close win i I think it's hard to pick on an over under in this one but the defenses are going to both play outstanding i believe and the quarterbacks are going to have some pressure and whoever is the individual that can step up and make the plays when they need to is going to lead their team to a victory just some quick numbers the argonauts are 31 15 and 1 at home in the playoffs the tie cats the exact opposite on the road 15 31 and 1 the last two the last time toronto hosted a east final was 2017 saskatchewan was the visitor and the argonauts prevailed and went on and won the gray cup pat's point about the quarterbacks about the offenses is an interesting one mcleod bethel thompson has been one of those quarterbacks that just continues to put up solid numbers but kind of flies under the radar versus somebody of jeremiah mazzoli's star caliber if you will and it seems like mazzoli is either really good or he's he's really off where mcleod bethel thompson is kind of that little engine that could and just keeps chugging along so it's really to me a tale of which mazzoli shows up more so than which mcleod bethel thompson he's a very, very slow starter. It's like he has to warm up and then things start to happen for him. So many times we saw where it wasn't until the third quarter that he started to slice and dice. He is, to me, the question mark. This is his first playoff start. It's going to be the first playoff coaching start for Ryan Didwitty as well. The pressure of being that close to the Grey Cup. Hamilton, they've got that site of their home stadium just outside the west end of BMO Field. They can see it too. It's interesting because we often think of the pressure being on a home team. And in this case, Toronto is the home team. But I think in this game, there's actually much more pressure, as you allude to, Don, because of the fact that Hamilton is going to be hosting that great cup. What an opportunity if Hamilton can be at home. You wonder if the team's going to come out a little bit tight because of that pressure. I don't doubt that this will be a hugely attended game. I do wonder if the ratio of Ticat fans to Argonaut fans is going to be 50-50. I would be surprised if it's quite there, but 60-40 is certainly within the realm of possibility, in my opinion. Regardless of which way this fan base goes, it's going to be an outstanding game, and uh, I, I don't expect this line to change a whole lot. I really do think it's a pick em, and it, it's going to be dependent on a few key plays. Ninth time in the history of these two franchises that they've met in the Eastern final, and they're four and four. This is the rubber match for the time being. I, I want to lean Hamilton in this one, but you look at that season series, and Toronto somehow found a way to win three out of the four. I might just have to flip a coin on this one and and go with what that tells me because I, I'm just back and forth so much in this one. Heath, I think your comment is exactly what I was going to say. I think this one truly is going to be a, a pick em. There may be some things that we find out about teams heading into lead up to the game, which is going to have me lean one way or the other. But right now I can honestly say I'm sitting on the fence. I don't know that I can pick a winner. Out West, it's the Saskatchewan Rough Riders in Winnipeg to take on the Blue Bombers, the Blue Bombers who had the bye for the semifinal play in their first home-dated Western final since 1972. Ironically, 
against the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. Now in 72, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders were the third place team coming in to the game, having bested Edmonton in the semifinal. And Saskatchewan prevailed 27 to 24 in a very famous last series of plays. Winnipeg is an eight point favorite over under 46. This line of favorite has moved bigger and bigger as the week has gone on. Of course, as you know, we record on Tuesdays. By the time Friday or Saturday rolls around, this line could be quite different based on other news stories that could come out between now and then. Given what happened in the regular season, I think eight points is a fair favorite to give Winnipeg. But the way that the Rough Riders gutted out that win against Calgary, they're coming in feeling pretty good about themselves and uh, anything can happen in the playoffs. When you have a team like Winnipeg who secured first place such a long time ago, they haven't really played a meaningful game in over four weeks. And the, the concern is always that the team's going to have trouble to raise that level of compete back up to where it needs to be. Having said that, I think this team is a special team. And they have done some amazing things this year. Their dominance when they've had their starters in and when it's go time has been unparalleled in recent history. And I do think the Bombers should be able to take this. And I honestly think they're going to carry the eight points. Saskatchewan still seems to be struggling. They managed to gut some games out. But I think they're going to run into a bit of an immovable force in this defense of Winnipeg, which will, I think, set the tone in this game. And I'm expecting Winnipeg to carry right through to the Grey Cup. You know, there's always a chance. That's why we play the games. But I think Saskatchewan did get a bit of a physical beating in that Calgary game. It It was a tough game for them. And so they're going to come in maybe fresher in the fact that they've they've played more recent, but at the same point, physically worn, where Winnipeg really isn't. Winnipeg's had a month to really get prepared for this game and and they've rested some key guys down the stretch we haven't heard much of an update on Andrew Harris whether he's going to be ready to go yet or not but I don't think there's really much else hindering Winnipeg as far as injuries go at this point a lot of those little nagging things that beat you down throughout the season they've had time to put some ice on it and and rest and rehabilitate so they should be a healthy team and raring to go just a Bit of history, the last time the Blue Bombers as a first place team won a Western final was 1962. That year they beat Calgary two games to one. They won a West final game at home in 1965 against then first place Calgary and beat Calgary in the best of three to go to the Grey Cup. Home teams since 1971, and I use 1971 because it's the first time that it's one and done in the West. Home teams in the West Final are 27 and 22. That's actually kind of surprising. I would have thought it would be a a little bit more to the home team. The bye, is it good or is it bad? Well, (laughs) I think it can, if a team is not ready for it, impact the team that's been on that long break. I think this team is different. I think this team is well coached. Michael Shea and his coaching staff, I think, are the best coaching staff in the league at this point. They've certainly designed both their offense and defense to the strengths I think they've put together some outstanding game plans and and I don't see this one being any different I think with the coaching staff and the players and the personnel they have if you're to stack them up on paper there's not any team that can really compete even though Saskatchewan finished uh, second place many of the games were barely eked out as wins they managed to pull them out on the close game so 
if there's any chance for Saskatchewan to win, it's if they can stay close. If Winnipeg can get out to a fast start and get ahead, I think this game will be over sooner. Two things that are going to be huge in this football game. First and foremost, turnovers. Second is neutralizing Willie Jefferson. If the Rough Riders have an answer for him, then I think they have a chance. The Rough Riders were embarrassed the two times that they played the Blue Bombers in the regular season. There's some incentive there. They also lost the 2019 West Final to the Blue Bombers on the famous Kadoink. If Saskatchewan is motivated by all of that, they may provide some questions for the Blue Bombers for them to answer. Games are not played on paper. Anything can happen in a West Final. 1989, a 9-9 Rough Rider team beats the best-recorded team in the history of the CFL and goes to the Grey Cup by besting Edmonton in Edmonton. Winnipeg is justified as being heavy favorites. Temperature could be minus 10 Celsius, which in Fahrenheit I think is plus 14. That starts to neutralize your extremities. How much of a role is Andrew Harris going to play? It might take more than motivation to contain a fired up Willie Jefferson for a playoff game. And we've talked a bit about the Rough Riders offensive line throughout the season as not necessarily being the strongest line. So it could be a long day for Cody Fajardo and that offensive line if Jefferson and Jackson Jeffcoat come fired up and ready to put some pressure on. And from what I've seen from the media and from sound bites from Willie Jefferson, he's pretty much already got his cleats on and running around on the field. He's fired up and ready. Saskatchewan's defensive line played a fairly good game against Calgary. Uh, you know, when, when we looked down to the Eastern semifinal, we saw Hamilton's defense shut down Montreal's running back. And I know we were all fairly uh, positive about Montreal's chances in this game with William Sandbeck. The only way I see Saskatchewan potentially staying close is if they're able to shut down that vaunted uh, offensive rush. But what a task when you've got an offensive line like Winnipeg's. They're the most dominant lines. And I think the, the battles on the lines are going to be what wins this game. And I think Winnipeg should be able to do that. As you said, Heath, Saskatchewan's offense, those short passes, if they can load up and, and put some pressure on Fajardo, he's got to then run, which he did in the last game. And I'm not sure that they'll have the same level of success against Winnipeg in their linebacking core if he does have to run. I love the fact that the East Final and the West Final are two of the classic Labor Day weekend matchups as well. It should be great for fans in attendance and it should be equally great for fans watching on TV. I think the the number of eyeballs on these games is going to be huge. We saw the Saskatchewan-Calgary game was the most viewed sporting event in Canada last weekend. So the interest is there. And then when you've got two marquee matchups like this, it's going to be an exciting weekend. Third down. With the close of the regular season, we now get to the 2021 CFL Awards finalists. We made our selections known last week. In some of the cases, we were right on. In some of the cases, I was way off. Let's go for something that we did not discuss. Coach of the Year, Ryan Dinwiddie versus Mike O'Shea, Dinwiddie of Toronto and O'Shea of Winnipeg. That's an interesting competition. It is, and you can really make an argument for either one. You've got Mike O'Shea, who has kept 
the defending Grey Cup champions at the top of the league pretty much all season versus a rookie head coach who took a very talented but new lineup and took them to the first place in the East. So I would have to give the nod to O'Shea just given what Winnipeg has done this year, but you can't take anything away from what Ryan did, what he has accomplished in his first season as a head coach. Dinwiddie was quite impressive. We said right at the beginning of the season that the key is going to be if they can get everyone on the same page and playing together, and Dinwiddie has done that in Toronto, which allowed them to get first place. But like you, Heath, I've, I've got to agree that Mike O'Shea is going to be the choice as the coach of the year. You don't see Mike O'Shea forgetting how to run out the clock at the end of a game. So for that reason, I'll give the nod, nod to Coach O'Shea. Curiously, though, Ryan Dinwiddie was, up until the last weekends of the season, the only coach to have beaten O'Shea in the regular season. Mike O'Shea, that team was so dominant for so long during the regular season. Rookie of the year, we've got Peter Nicastro, an offensive lineman from the Toronto Argonauts, and Jordan Williams of the British Columbia Lions. That This one's interesting because we're not straight up positionally against each other. No, we're not. And I think, you know, we've, we've spoken about the importance of an offensive line and, and for Toronto to be able to take a, a rookie who comes out as not only this, but I believe they're, they're outstanding offensive linemen as well uh, when they were making the first choices. But for him to be coming out of the East as a rookie of the year potential, I think that that's definitely interesting. But I, I having watched Jordan Williams this year, I'm still going to go to the West on this one because I do believe Jordan Williams has had an outstanding year to the point where he's almost become a household name on defense as a rookie. And I, I don't quite feel that Peter Nicastro is in that sense when we talk about offensive linemen. At the same time, when you don't hear an offensive lineman's name, it's probably a good thing. Good point. <laughs> so, but that being said, I, I agree with you, Pat. Jordan Williams has been outstanding. I think he's a very bright defensive star in this league for years to come and not to take away anything from Nicastro uh, he could be a stalwart on an offensive line for many years as well but just from the the sheer numbers that Jordan Williams has put up in his rookie season I have to give him the nod 92 defensive tackles in 14 games as linebacker with the Lions for Jordan Williams special teams Devontae Dedman of the Ottawa Red Blacks versus Rennie Paradise of the Calgary Stampeders a returner versus a kicker I think Deadman wins this. I agree 100%. Yeah, there's no doubt in my mind that Devontae Deadman is, is the outstanding special teams player. Not to take away from Rennie Paredes, he had a phenomenal year. But when you've got somebody as dynamic and exciting to watch on special teams returning the ball like Devontae Deadman, he has to get the nod. Devontae Deadman was lightning in a bottle and there's no way that he can't be the guy. So I, I will throw my hat in the same circle. Ignite, the nice thing for the Red Blacks is that Deadman is re-upped for 2022. It'll be interesting to see if he gets worked more into the offense next year as well. You look at a similar situation with Lucky Whitehead in Winnipeg where he was basically pigeonholed as the return guy. He got to BC this year with a new look and is a dynamic offensive player. So I, I hope for similar things for Devontae Dedman. I, I hope he continues the success he's had on special teams, but it would be great to see him get more involved in that uh, offensive core as well. The same can be said of Brandon Banks. You know, once given the opportunity, an explosive player like this should be able to make a difference on offense. And I think Devontae Dedman is someone Ottawa has to work into their offense. Offensive line, we've got Brandon Revenberg of the Hamilton Tiger Cats versus Stanley Bryant of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Stanley Bryant, a former winner 
I'm leaning towards Bryant again. Winnipeg's offensive line is clearly the class of the league, and he is the anchor. Two outstanding linemen here. Um, I do believe Revenberg would be a great pick, but going up against Stanley Bryant and the dominance of that Winnipeg line, I don't think there's a chance that he will take it. I agree, Don. Stanley Bryant would be my choice for the offensive line. When you look at Winnipeg going into this year and even at the end of 2019, the question mark surrounding the team was always the health and welfare of Zach Caleros. And was he one more hit away from ending his career or ending his season? And you've got somebody like Stanley Bryant protecting that side, and he did not let people get to Zach Caleros. So you have to give the nod in this situation. Winnipeg gave up the fewest sacks, I believe, all season, and a big part of that was Stanley Bryant. Outstanding Canadian. Great competition here. We've got David Menard, defensive lineman with the Montreal Alouettes, and Bo Lacombo, linebacker with the British Columbia Lions. This one is a real tough one. Each has their merit. This, for me, was one of the toughest ones to pick. Um, When I look at Menard, I I think he's been a real force and and played very well as a Canadian on that defensive line. Yet, when I look at Lacombo and watch the game, he seemed to be everywhere on that field. So it's a real tight one, but but I'm leaning towards Lacombo in this case. I'm going to go the other direction, and I'm going to give this one to David Menard from the Montreal Alouettes. And it's a very, very tough decision. You're right, Pat. I think this is the closest one for me as well. But uh, I, it's it's hard to pick one division to pretty much run the table. And I've got a lot of other guys in the West right now that I am leaning towards for these awards. So I think I'm going to give a little bit of an edge to Menard on this one. Lacombo had 66 defensive tackles and four sacks. Menard had eight sacks. Defensive, this one is fantastic. Simone Lawrence versus Adam Big Hill. Simone Lawrence of the Tiger Cats, Adam Big Hill of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. We have regaled about them both all year. I don't think there's a bad choice in this one. Either one of them, I don't think anybody's going to argue with. Um, I am leaning towards Adam Big Hill just based on what Winnipeg's defense has done all season. And for him to even just come out of Winnipeg to be the nominee speaks volumes. He's a leader and what he does, not just in that linebacker position, but his ability to slide down to to safety and defensive back on some place. He's got that speed. He's got that closing ability. And I'm going to give him the slight edge over Simone Lawrence. Two of the premier linebackers in the league and you're right. I, I don't think you can go wrong with either pick. When I do take a look at the two teams, though, Simone Lawrence is firmly entrenched as that middle linebacker. And Heath, you mentioned the versatility of Adam Big Hill to be able to move into defensive line position, drop to safety, be all over the field, make those plays and cover. Uh, I think in this case, not only his abilities, but as you say, the, the team's performance on defense, I would lean toward Adam Big Hill as well. 73 defensive tackles, three interceptions, four sacks for Simone Lawrence, 70 defensive tackles, two interceptions, and two sacks for Adam Big Hill. I don't think you go wrong choosing either, but I'm going to give the nod to Simone Lawrence just because. <laughs> <laughs> to, take a, to take the Eastern and balance off, right? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> 
you can't go wrong with either. You just can't. And I, it pains me not to pick Big Hill. MOP, most outstanding player. We've got a running back versus a quarterback. William Stanback of the Montreal Alouettes and Zach Kolaris of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. This one's an interesting one. When we take a look at the stats of both, Stanbeck as a running back seems to be above the other core of running backs in Montreal, rushing for 1,176 yards, and the next closest was Kadeem Carey at 869. So certainly he seems to be you know, higher than Zach Caleros, and yet Zach Caleros in that leadership role as their quarterback has led Winnipeg to an outstanding season, outstanding offensively. He was the second leading passer in terms of total yards, 3,185, where Michael Riley had 3,283. The stat that stands out for me is his 20 touchdowns to six interceptions. He controlled the ball. He is the engine that makes the offense run. I'm leaning towards Zach Caleros. I would give it to Zach Caleros as well. Maybe not the flashiest season this year for an MOP candidate, but you can't take away what he's done as a starting quarterback since he's arrived in Winnipeg. They credited him with two losses down the stretch. Now, granted, that game against Calgary, he was technically the starter, led them down the field, and and immediately the backup quarterback fumbled. So you can't really pin that one as a loss on him. And I think for what he has done overall, he's the MOP. I think the MOP isn't on the ballot. I did pick Lucky Whitehead. I'm still believing he is the MOP this year. In only 12 games, he almost had a 1,000 yards of pass receiving. Choosing between Calaris and Standback, Standback had a great year, 6.09 average per touch, but only three touchdowns. It's Calaris for me. I just, he did enough to, to win the award, but there's really nobody that stood head and shoulders above anyone else this year. Final thoughts. If we can go into the final games here on both the East and West and have some hopefully close games. I do think Winnipeg will be able to take it a little bit easier, but I'm certainly excited about the Eastern game. I think that will be a very close game and you never know what happens with weather and situations in the West. I am super excited to be able to sit down and spend my Sunday watching us get to the the Western final and Eastern final, these final games prior to the Great Cup. It's so exciting. Uh, we talked all last year about how great it's going to be to get here. And now that it's here, we've got to eat this up. Win or lose in this Western final, I think the Bombers have been great defending champions they have played so well throughout the year and a special nod happening at this western final i can't wrap up this podcast without saying bob irving is going to be inducted into the bombers ring of honor i am probably watching the tsn broadcast on mute so i can tune into cjob online and listen to bob call his last game a great way to wrap up a truly phenomenal career just in the time that we've been recording the Odds have changed, and now Saskatchewan is plus 9.5. Let's hope for some warm, if that's at all possible, December weather in Winnipeg. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean. Follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at Third Down Gamble. Join us again next time. The Third Down Gamble Podcast audio worth watching.